Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. We want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land who we are broadcasting from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and respect the elders past, present and emerging and their ongoing struggle. Welcome to Refugee Radio this week on 3CR, listening on 855 AM or on 3cr.org.au. Firstly, I wanted to start off the show with the update that the Billawilla family, or also Priya, Nads, Kobe and Tani, have had their bridging visas extended for another three months, but of course Tani is still in community detention. Now, for this week, we're going to be listening to an update on their legal situation, which happened before this decision, and this was aired on Tuesday home time a few weeks ago. Have a listen. Today, we revisit the issue of deep sea mining with Dr. Helen Rosenbaum, co-coordinator of the deep sea mining campaign. The appalling record of successive Australian governments to assist and settle asylum seekers. We're speaking with retired solicitor Max Costello. Growing awareness and opposition to the cashless debit card with campaigner Catherine Wilkes. More information about the betrayal of the trade union movement by Bob Bork and his work with the CIA with retired unionist Jim McElroy. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, last week we commented on the same day big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs ordered an inquiry into the damage union super funds were causing the esteemed practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all, damage like fiscal indigestion, a totally unbiased, no predetermined outcome inquiry led by the equally neutral ex-Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs poly Tim Wilgett Union son, he also announced he would not allow a review into the at least 25 billion JobKeeper rip-offs by those esteemed practitioners. This week, Josh went one better. He turned the debt collectors loose on workers who received JobKeeper, who therefore, for some reason, owe the government money they allegedly ripped off, many of whom... Hi, Hi. we're from Raymond College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. I spoke at the weekend with retired solicitor Max Costello and we focused on four-year-old Tamil girl Dandika Mirakuppan awaiting a decision on the level of health care she received on Christmas Island. But the family's quest for asylum went to the High Court last week. The High Court decided not to hear the case. I heard an excellent explanation by Simone Cameron who's a, a part of the Back to Bilo team. She used to live there, although she's not qualified as a lawyer yet. She has quite a good understanding of um, migration law and so on. And so she gave an excellent account speaking on the um, Capitol Hill, I think, um, ABC 24 show. She said, yes, they've refu- refused to hear it on the grounds that Tharnika's claim had to be based on the situation at the time and so the the court was just considering back then did she have 
a claim to be remaining in Australia. On the papers, as it were, the answer was no. So the, the, the High Court wasn't looking at a rehearing. It was just deciding was the um, refusal back then legally correct, and they said it, it was. And as, as Simone Cameron explained, it, going to the High Court was a bit of a long shot. They didn't have high hopes, but, uh, you know, you've got to try what you can. But interestingly, she also mentioned other processes that are on foot. Well, one of them is with the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. That tribunal is considering the fact that the finding uh, by the Federal Court of Australia uh, that she was denied natural justice in the process that had been commenced that matter whether whether she was denied natural justice is and what can be done now is with the Ministry of Appeals Tribunal and that is coming up I think in a few months time potentially. The third thing and I hadn't known this at all was that somehow the two girls were made citizens of Sri Lanka. Apologise here I don't know before which uh, body but the legal advice is that that purported awarding of, of citizen status was not properly done, was not legitimate, I could put it in those words. And so that is also uh, another matter. Then Simone went on to say, and I think it's relevant if you don't mind, I'll, I'll raise this. Well, what, if anything, could Immigration Minister Hawke be doing in, in the meantime? He, he has said he's going to await the outcome of these various uh, proceedings before he makes any decision in relation to the family. She said, and this is a must be a very important point, that the minister has total discretion, total power, if he so wishes, to grant uh, or arrange the granting, the issuing of a short-term visa to Fanka, he doesn't have to wait for any court or other processes. Totally personal discretion. She stressed that point. He could, by if he took that decision and uh, she was given the same short-term visa, or perhaps a longer one than the rest of the family, then they could be moved back to Bilawila to await these uh, proceedings if, if that's required. It's not as if the minister's hands are tied and, and he has to await other proceedings. Not at all. That's about um, where the land lies. And, of course, the, uh, the back to Bilo, the, the, the community and Angela Fredericks and others are pushing for Minister Hawke to exercise his discretion. Because the, the three-month visa they've got runs out, I think, on the 22nd of September. So... Time is uh, pressing. When we last spoke, you expressed concern that where the government had put them in their temporary accommodation was right near the airport. So it looks like if this is going to go on for quite a while, the plane to back to Sri Lanka is off the um, agenda for the moment. Since Mr Hawke, Minister Hawke has insisted unnecessarily and misleadingly that uh, he has to await... Uh, or he will await uh, external proceedings, it would be an extraordinary event 
if the family were to be put on a plane back to Sri Lanka while those were proceedings were on foot. I think if Minister Hawke sticks to his guns, so to speak, it would look as if there's a delay in the possible transfer to uh, deportation of Sri Lanka until those processes are concluded. Yes, I think that's a logical, uh, logically correct, Jan. The case of Thanika serves to highlight the concerns of yourself and many others that the detainees, whether they're onshore or offshore, one important aspect of the federal government is that they're offloading the health care to the states and the states are already under great stress, the hospitals and the health care, but by leaving these people right to the last moment to give them proper care, they're putting their lives in danger, but they're also offloading the, the cost to y the states. Yes, oh, absolutely. And the context here, in a way, the apparent gross health neglect of uh, little Varnica so that she had to be put on an emergency air ambulance flight to Perth is a tiny little microcosm of the standard of health care in detention across the board. And it so happens that her individual case, of course, was there was a rescue, if you like, of taking her to Perth. By the way, Simone Cameron mentioned that, that the whole family been receiving help or care as outpatients of the Perth Children's Hospital or I, I suppose the parents would be going to another hospital, I'm just guessing there. But the point being that the fact that that's happening means that there are doctors who presumably can see, and again, I'm not on Medico, can see that this family, having been traumatised for so long, would need ongoing medical care and uh, while they're in detention, that's the responsibility of the Commonwealth through Home Affairs. But going back to your question about healthcare neglect generally, yes, what's happening is to take one group, the, the group that were transferred from either Papua New Guinea or Nauru to Australia under the so-called Medicare, Medivac amendments, the Migration Act, that they came into force early 2019 and the government managed to have them repealed in December 2019. But while they were there, quite, a, I don't know, several hundred, I'm thinking, people who were detainees or mainly ex-detainees on Manus and Nauru were flown here. And the wording in the Migration Act is, for as amended, quote, for the purpose of medical or psychiatric assessment or treatment, unquote. So they were brought here for that purpose. But the Morrison government has, by and large, determined that that purpose will be stymied. So very few of the mainly men have actually received that specialist assessment or, or care. And as a result, and, and of course they weren't, unlike the predecessors who got a federal court order to fly them here for highly specified care and even naming in some cases the, the care into the, the hospital or other care institution to which they had to be taken. So those pre-Medivac people were actually provided with care and in the meantime they were, they were housed in uh, the community, in, in community detention, whereas the Medivac cohort 
by, have by and large not received the care they were flown here for and they've been held in formal detention, a, a few of them in immigration detention facilities proper like the real hardcore places if you like, but nearly all of them in hotel APODs as they're called, alternative places of detention. Drip by drip, some of them have been released. They have to fend for themselves, they're not getting health care, but the ones who are still in detention, either in a hotel APOD, one family, adult family in Darwin, in that situation, there are men in a hotel in Melbourne, the, so, the Park Hotel, and other, others around the country. Now, that's eight years they've been confined one form or another in one place or another, and it's just has taken a, a terrible toll on their physical and psychiatric health. To get to your point about dumping them on state and territory hospitals, what's happened is, for example, at, at the at MITRE, Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, men are on there have held several hunger strikes just in a desperate attempt to try to win their freedom. When they get sicker and sicker, they've been taken, some of them, to the local hospital, the northern hospital, and taken to the emergency section, often at night. This has been happening, whether it's a hunger strike or just, you know, serious health concerns. They've been taken, and this is true around Australia, they've been taken to hospitals when they get really, really sick. And so you're right, the state hospital systems are cleaning up the mess, as it were, of uh, Commonwealth neglect. And now we have one refugee, Cave. Yes, K-A-V-E-H. What do you know about his situation? I'm going by the report on SBS News a few days ago, and I think the Guardian Australia had a similar account. In that case, And his lawyer, Alison Batterson, who's a remarkable, uh, remarkably effective and determined legal representative, She's quoted as saying that um, the eight years has just caught up with him. Having been on a, a hunger strike, he is now damaged so that he really has trouble eating at all. I'll quote from the SBS article. Carve is being treated for, for gastrointestinal issues with his body struggling to tolerate food after he took part in a month-long hunger strike protesting for his release, said uh, Alison Batterson. She has um, taken a remarkable initiative. She, in, on the 22nd of July, the article goes on, she wrote to the United Nations and the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner responded the following day saying it would consider she sought an appeal to the UN body and has asked uh, the UN body to take steps to see if he can be placed in community detention as an interim measure. Batterson goes on to say the UN's prompt response, quote, speaks to the severity of Carmen's case and concerns for his well-being. And she goes on, quote, the UN has recognised the severity of this situation. She told SBS News, this demonstrates that there are serious concerns about his life. The longer these People, mainly men, are kept in detention. There's eight years and counting. The the more likely serious, drastic physical and psychiatric 
uh, ill health is going to present itself. This is an extreme case. It's only the one at this point. But logically, these cases are going to, if they're kept in detention, these sort of events are going to occur again. A bit worrying, though, that the consideration of that Human Rights Committee, the decision won't be until next year. That'll be too late. I'm not sure. I'm out of my depth here. I'm not sure whether any any part of that committee can make uh, provision or interim uh, findings. You're, you're right. From a political uh, perspective, I would think the fact that, that the UN has responded promptly and expressed concern is something that Alison Batterson is hoping will embarrass uh, and expose the government into taking some action. The thing is that they are releasing from time to time. They've done this over the last 12 months. Dutton says it's because it's cheaper. They've been releasing these long-term detainees one or two at a time here and there. There's no pattern. There's no explanation. And so, of course, the people who are still left behind, like that sole family in Darwin, are just at their wits' end. Why aren't we being released? I mean, it's not as if they're in, you know, fine fettle just having been put in COVID hotel quarantine for a fortnight or something and they're, you know, really well and healthy and, uh, or well, you know, their lives are generally stable. These people are enormously distressed and in very poor health generally. And uh, for them to be told nothing about whether and if so, when they'll be released is just uh, sort of turning the screws, really. I can just refer back to the first lot of people who were taken to Nauru, and it got to the stage where there was only one man left, one man and his cat, and he was finally released. But that young man now, who's probably in his late 30s, has been in and out of trouble since because of the, the treatment that he got there and how it yeah, impacted uh, on yeah. his life. Uh, yes, at some stage there really needs to be a royal commission into into all this, both offshore and onshore, really. And, and there's a further point, Jan, and you've perhaps hinted at it, on putting, putting the demands on the state and territory hospitals. There's also the point that when they're released, um, some of them... They get, a, I think, a couple of weeks of uh, financial support, and that's it. Some of them have been as hotel aides, with other people who've been living for years in community detention with some sort of minimal financial support and, of course, a roof over their heads, and they're just released. That's it. Look after yourselves. So it's not only the, the state and territory hospitals that are being burdened, it's, it's a charity organisations, it's, it's the refugee advocate uh, community, if I could call it that, who visited these people and tried to nurture them and help them. How are they going to live? Now, some of them have got work rights, but when you've been unemployed for eight years, you're on a visa that lasts six months at a time. How are you going to persuade an employer, unless that person is just a good-hearted person trying to look after people in distress, how are you going to get an employer to take on those people? The government knows that work rights, although they're legitimate and important, there's no guarantee that they'll get work, and, and they're not entitled to um, New Start. There are people who, as a result of government 
inaction and or action in this case of just releasing them with little or no support or no way to live, this is just unbelievable. It's a psychopathic policy implementation, really. It's just, and we have a prime minister who, who parades his um, religious or ethical beliefs and commitments. Well, <laughs> yes, I'll say no more on that. I think there's a wider point here um, on this, this cohort. There could be others, I don't know, the full story about who's entitled to what social security benefits. But with wages frozen and, and the new start and uh, some other, you know, being frozen, that hasn't increased except very marginally, I think, uh, for the last 25 years, the government is creating uh, an increasing underclass, a bit like the US uh, model. And this is of, um, of great concern. Another issue that you've pointed to is that what many people say or feel that it's a deliberate policy of the government to destroy these people and then let them out. And you've identified four ways that play on people's minds and just just destroy them. Yes, well, going back to the Nauru uh, and Manus, people, people were sent offshore, and you know, this is going back 10, 10 or so years ago, and they were given a so-called boat number. I've checked with this, prisoners in ordinary jails in Australia, they're referred to by their name. They might be just called by the surname or, or so on. Uh, but the um, instruction throughout the Home Affairs Department, what's now called Home Affairs Department, is that detainees that try to come here by boat without a visa, they are to be referred to in writing as well as speech only by their boat number. I think the first three is like A, B, C, one, two, three. The first, the, the letters of the alphabet are derived from the name of the boat they try to come here on and then they let the numbers are known just to each individual. And that still happens here now in Australia. And, you know, correspondence is addressed to number, you know, A, B, C, one, two, three, uh, even within the... Um, public service, that just takes away their identity and their, their dignity. So that's one way, you know, deliberate policy, despite the fact that they have a duty under the Health and Safety Act to proactively and preventively look after both their psychological and their physical health. And the second one is, now that they're here in Australia, if they have to go to a medical appointment, they're handcuffed. So then they are sitting in the waiting room with other patients and they're made to look like dangerous prisoners. The third is the uh, extraordinary level of forced transfers around Australia. There's a, been an article published in The Conversation. And it's derived from an academic article, this researcher from the uh, University of Queensland, Ms. Where's her name is uh, Michelle Pateri, P-E-T-E-R-I-E. Uh, and she did research, got the official figures, between July 2017 and May 2019, there were 8,000 involuntary movements, that's air flights, within the uh, detention system. And that was when there were only a few hundred or several hundred refugees and asylum seekers in total, you know, hundreds. She quotes a figure of 504 in December 2019. So 8,000 Airlifts and the cost between July 2008 and August 2019 was 6.1 million 
Pateric conducted 70 interviews over five years with regular visitors to the detention facilities, and she quotes two comments which tell you the psychological damage that the, the risks they're put to. Quote, it was always early in the morning. I get 10 minutes to pack, pack your bags, and things would be lost. It was such a hurry, it was made to be traumatic for them. And it was also so upsetting, quoting, for all the other refugees. They've seen people get hauled off, and they never know if it's going to be you next morning. As to handcuffing, that they were handcuffed during the flights. Terry quotes the Australian Human Rights Commission, this is a couple of years ago, he documented what he called the excessive, unquote, use of restraints during transfers. And then not long before her 2000 article was, came, went to print, the Commonwealth Ombudsman observed that handcuffs had become, quote, accepted transfer practice during transport operations. And the fourth one, is to tie up with the with the fact that people who don't have a visa, who don't get entitled or not entitled to protection, and come from a country where they to which they can't be returned, can't be deported because that would be resettlement under the um, Refugees Convention. The High Court, via the high, recent High Court decision and amendments to Migration Act. Both those things have reinforced the official legality of potentially keeping those people in immigration detention for the rest of their lives. What we're seeing with Alison Batterson's clients after, what, 20, 30, 40 years in detention? It doesn't take much imagination to realise that those people are going to be destroyed, really. I mean, unlike, you know, ordinary they have a release date unless they're the tiny handful of detainees who get charged for life. At least they know they have some sort of potential future. The dangers to health, psychological health, the first three, and perhaps total health in the last case. And this is all deliberate government policy. You just wonder, or maybe you, we don't wonder, how Australia looks to the rest of the world, not only on this issue, but you talk about climate change and you can add all these others that, you know, we used to be a compassionate country, but that seems to have gone with the governments that we've had recently. I think you're absolutely right. You might have noticed that in recent months, perhaps for a year or so now, people who you wouldn't think are necessarily political, like Alan Kohler, who presents the... Um, the finance report on ABC Television News. He's now writing under his own banner, if you like, and he's scathing about the lack of quality governance. Hugh Mackay, long-time social affairs commentator, has, has said we, we seem to have lost our moral compass in the, the way we're being governed federally at the moment. There is no, almost no admitting to mistakes there is an occasional cursory sort of apology to the sort of victims of RoboNet, for example. It's uh, a very deep concern. It goes, as you say, beyond the refugee asylum seekers' issues. It's um, broader and deeper and very, very concerning. And I, I think, um, although the average Joe and Mary mightn't sort of take note of these things, I think it's beginning to bite.
and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Max Costello in the near future. You're listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR, 855 AM or on 3cr.org.au. We're just listening to quite a long interview done through Tuesday Home Time with Max and that was around mainly the situation with the Bilawila family and also about some other issues for refugees who have been in detention and current legal battles. So we've come to the end of this show, so thank you for listening and we'll be back next week. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution.